You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. When you have that passion, you will get back up when you get knocked down. And you will get knocked down over and over and over and over again, and you win by getting back up. And our journey has been nothing but that. But will Elizabeth Holmes be able to get back up after facing criminal charges? That was a very confident Holmes at a Forbes conference in 2015 when she was still the world's youngest female self-made billionaire and the darling of the tech and media worlds with her promise to revolutionize blood testing. Holmes' spectacular fall from grace has been plotted in books, countless news stories, and an HBO documentary. What is coming out of her mouth is not reality. This was real lunacy. Can you tell us a secret? I don't have many secrets. Her net worth was estimated at $4.5 billion, but that was before Theranos, her blood testing startup, unraveled amid allegations that her main product was really fraud. Holmes and her boyfriend were charged with defrauding investors. With Holmes facing years in prison, her lawyers are now exploring whether she can beat the charges by asking jurors to delve into her psychological state. The exact strategy remains a question mark. Joining me is Ann Coughlin, a criminal law professor at the University of Virginia Law School who specializes in feminist jurisprudence. Her lawyers say they may tell jurors about a mental disease or defect or some other mental condition bearing on her guilt. Is that an insanity defense or not an insanity defense? So as I read the documents that relate to this interesting claim, I don't think she's raising an insanity defense. It's true that her notice refers to mental disease or defect, but when you read her motion papers carefully, she seems to be invoking the theory that she's going to put forward a mental disease or defect that in some way bears on the question of whether she's guilty. And that's separate from an insanity defense. It's a different kind of use of a mental health disorder. When a defendant invokes a mental health disorder, there's more than one way in which they might be using the claim. One highly visible claim is the insanity defense, but I think she's arguing that she is going to use evidence of some kind of mental health disorder to negate her guilt on the wire fraud charges, and this is not a full-blown insanity claim. And we don't know how she's going to use this, in part because a lot of the judge's order and the motion papers were blacked out when it came to specifics. So is it likely that she's going to try to use it to show that she did not have intent to commit wire fraud? That would be one of her claims. And again, I want to just back up and say to you, you're exactly right. One of the sort of tantalizing things about Elizabeth Holmes' case generally is we really don't know a whole lot about the backstory. At least we don't know about that backstory from her. So there's been tons of reporting in the media, as you well know. There have been books and magazine articles and documentaries in which people are trying to put together a coherent story of her life and what led up to the conduct that ultimately culminates in these charges. But we really don't know what facts she's going to allege. So we don't know what her story is going to be that supports the claim that she has a mental health disorder. But one way that she could use a mental health disorder is to support the so-called diminished capacity defense. 
And the idea would be that, yes, she did all these things. She committed all the conduct that the government alleges. But when she was doing those things, her purpose was not to defraud people, but was for some other reason, right? And then we're left to try to speculate, again, what she's going to claim her purpose was. So in order for the government to prove these wire fraud charges, they have to prove not only that she lied, that she made false representations, but that she did so for the purpose of defrauding people of their money. So one way to think about this is that she's going to argue, yes, I did these things. They were lies, but I wasn't doing it to defraud people. I was doing it for some other reason that's explained by the mental health disorder. You know, I was doing it because I had such a fragile ego. You know, one thing she might claim is that at the inception of my activity, I honestly thought that I was going to be able to come up with this miracle way to do blood tests. You know, that was my objective as a young person. And I actually thought I was going to be able to pull it off, right? So that in the beginning, I wasn't lying to people. I was describing for them my aspirations in this technological space. Okay, fine. I don't see how that story can hold up for the many, many years, but that's one claim that she might try to make. Does it seem as if any kind of defense like this is going to be difficult in light of the accusations that she adopted this persona based on Silicon Valley elites, that she even adopted a deep baritone voice? Does it seem like any claim of mental disease would fail in light of that persona she kept up so successfully for so many years. From where we sit now, and again, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm a law professor, and so we always want to be careful when we're talking in ignorance of the facts. You know, we still don't know what her story would be. But from where we sit, her claim, whatever it is, looks really, really like a tough sell. The alleged misconduct took place over many years. Whatever her motive may have been at the beginning, whatever she thought she could achieve at the beginning, clearly there came a time when it's proper for a jury to infer beyond a reasonable doubt that she knew she couldn't achieve what she had claimed. And so it's very, very tough to imagine that her backstory is going to be convincing. You're exactly right. She appears to have been deliberately playing a role. She appears to have modeled her behavior as a tech mogul along the lines of what she was seeing out there in that world. She was affecting behaviors that she'd seen other successful CEOs use. So all of that looks deliberate. And it looks like it was put on to defraud people to make them believe in her and give her her money because she appeared to be one of them. And the other problem that I see for her is if the jury will see all of this evidence of the role that she played, the artificial ways in which she is alleged to have styled herself, they're going to think, my gosh, you know, she was lying then. And then they're likely to doubt the backstory she's telling now. You know, they may just think she was lying then, she's lying now. So this is an awfully difficult sell. And I take it she's going to try to tell some kind of story that says, yep, I did these things, 
but I didn't do them for the purpose of bilking people of their money. I did it because I had some kind of psychological deficit, you know, some kind of psychological wound that I was trying to fill, you know, that I was trying to please my boyfriend. I was trying to make up for loss of affluence in my family when I was a child, something like that. Again, it's very, very tough from where we sit now to see how this claim could succeed, but we don't yet know the story she's going to tell. Now, you mentioned her boyfriend, who's accused of the same crime. There has been some suggestion that she might paint him as this sort of Svengali and that she was under his influence. And they're not going to be tried together, so that's something she could do. How would that help her in a criminal case? It's going to be, again, an extremely tough sell, and it's hard to know without the facts exactly how she would try to present that defense. But from reading the news reports, there are suggestions that her boyfriend, who was a top executive in the company, whom she had known since she was 19 years old, I think, and he was quite a bit older than she. So the idea was that she fell under his influence and that she was carrying out a plan that was being dictated by him. It's possible that that story is true. The question for the jury will be, so what? What relevance does that story have to her guilt? People frequently commit crimes acting under the influence of other people or under various kinds of influences, and it makes no difference whatsoever to their liability. So one suggestion that I've seen is that her ex-boyfriend was a bully, and maybe the claim is that he was very violent with her. I'm just speculating now, but one argument might be that she was so terrified of him that she carried out the fraud because she was in fear of suffering further abuse at his hands. That's almost an impossible claim to mount in any case. But in a case like this, it looks truly impossible because of the amount of time that the fraud occupied. In other words, sometimes defendants can claim that they acted under duress. They acted because they were afraid that some other powerful person was going to harm them physically really badly. You know, think of committing a crime under the threat of death with a gun to the head. But even in those cases where someone can show that they were mixed up with a character who had threatened to harm them, If you had time to go to the police and report that person, if there were periods of time in which the person didn't have a gun to your head, then the claim will not succeed. And we have no evidence here that she was committing this fraud under imminent or immediate threats from this character. Thanks for being on the show, Anne. That's Anne Coughlin, a professor at the University of Virginia Law School. The late Robert Indiana is the pop artist whose love sculpture became one of the most recognizable artworks of the 20th century. With an estate worth somewhere between 50 and 90 million dollars, the legal fight over the rights to Indiana's artwork and the control of his legacy has been bitter and complicated, including allegations of art fraud and elder abuse. But now a step's been taken toward resolution of the dispute. As Indiana's longtime representative, the Morgan Art Foundation, a for-profit company which originally brought the lawsuit, reached an agreement with the nonprofit that's the sole beneficiary of Indiana's estate, the Star of Hope Foundation. My guest is the attorney who represents the Morgan Art Foundation, Maren Shah, who heads the art litigation practice at Quinn Emanuel. There are so many parties involved here. Can you tell us 
who the main parties are? Sure. So the parties to this litigation are my clients who are the Morgan Art Foundation and Simon Salamacaro, um, who were the artists Robert Indiana's uh, patrons and partners on many of his projects during his lifetime. The defendants in the case are James Brannon, who is the personal representative, uh, or in other words, the executor of Indiana's estate, Michael McKenzie and his company, American Image Art, who produced certain works that were attributed to Robert Indiana during uh, the later years of his life, and Jamie Thomas, who was Indiana's caretaker uh, on the island of Vinyl Haven, where he lived during the later years of his life. So you initially sued Indiana as well? We did, and the reason we did that was just for technical legal reasons, given the structure of our my client's contract with Robert Indiana. But the intent in filing the lawsuit, which you'll have to remember was filed when the artist was alive, um, was really intended to protect the artist and to protect his works against exploitation by, we believe, Michael McKenzie and Jamie Thomas, who was then acting as his power of attorney. Why did the Morgan Foundation decide that it wanted to file or needed to file a lawsuit? So as part of their work with Indiana, Indiana and Morgan had signed a series of contracts many, many years ago that gave Morgan the right to certain of Indiana's works, the right to police the intellectual property in those works, and the exclusive right to fabricate and sell certain edition works. And Morgan Art Foundation and my and and Mr. Salamakaro and his family were very, very close to the artist um, for decades and worked with him in close collaboration during that whole time. And in the couple years prior to the artist's death, they noticed a real shift in their ability to contact the artist and to work with the artist. His health was failing and his care had been taken over by um, a new assistant who is Jamie Thomas who my clients felt were was progressively isolating the artist from his friends and supporters and increasingly controlling his affairs. Um, and at the same time as this was happening, my clients and many others in the art market noticed that there were a lot of new, low-quality reproductions of Indiana's work that were starting to flood the market that nobody had ever seen before and didn't believe were really by the artist. And so these two circumstances kind of conflated, and my clients were really only able to visit the artist once in the years before his death. They were they were precluded from seeing him. Jamie Thomas barred them from coming to visit him or talking to him. And when they visited him, they found him in extremely poor health, living in squalor, and seemingly unaware of these things that were going on. Um, and so they ultimately filed the lawsuit because they felt like they had no choice in order to protect his art and his market from these low-quality infringements that also infringed on um, the rights that my clients had under contract with Indiana, and also to bring to light the, the, the condition that they had found him in and what they believed to be the mistreatment and isolation of him in his, in his elder years. And unfortunately, um, as it turned out, the lawsuit was filed just one day before he ultimately passed away. Um, so sadly, they were not able to help him personally during his lifetime. Um, but it was their hope that they would be able to help and protect his legacy and the legacy of his art um, from these low quality infringements going forward. So tell us about the allegations of the lawsuit. So the, law, the lawsuit originally... Um, which, again, was filed while the artist was alive, 
alleged that in the later years of his life, as I said, he had been isolated and was being controlled by his caretaker, um, who was essentially collaborating, it was alleged, with Michael McKenzie and his company, American Image Art, who were um, art publishers. And what they did was produce certain editioned works, which were mostly prints um, of Robert Indiana images. Um, and the lawsuit alleged that these prints that they produced uh, that were attributed to Robert Indiana were essentially forgeries, that they either were not authorized by the artist or were authorized by him only under duress, um, that they infringed on copyrights and other rights that my clients had exclusively under their contracts with the artists to produce and promote and sell works that contain these images. Um, and that they, you know, that they were damaging his art market um, and were essentially illegal reproductions of his work. It seems as if this legal fight got bitter and nasty pretty quickly. Is that indicative of these kinds of fights and or was this particularly nasty? Yes. You know, I, I think it's an unfortunate fact that artists, estates and foundations very commonly encounter incredible difficulty after an artist dies and they often become embroiled in power struggles and litigations after an artist's death. And surprisingly few of them are successful over the long term. And I do think this case was a, was a prime example of that. It's, it's an unusual example of that in the way it developed, but it is not unusual uh, in the art world, uh, in the art world. And I just want you to respond to some claims that were made against the foundation that you hadn't properly compensated Indiana for sales of his work and you unfairly interfered with his business and some unauthorized reproductions. Yes, those were all untrue. Um, and discovery in the case, I, you know, I believe revealed that. And if the case moves forward, that will become plain um, at trial. But my clients always provided um, the accounting to Indiana that they were required to under their contract that he asked for. Um, they always paid him all the royalties that he was due under the sales they made of his work. Um, they did this for literally decades, you know, in close collaboration with him, talked to him all the time. He never complained about it. Um, and the projects that they undertook were undertaken with the express permission and approval and cooperation of the artist during his life. Now, how did the Maine Attorney General get involved in this, you know, dispute between private parties? Right. Well, in Maine, the Attorney General's office has oversight functions over Maine nonprofit organizations. And the foundation that was established after the artist's death, that was the sole beneficiary in his will of all his assets and had a charitable mission to promote his legacy going forward, is a 501c3 nonprofit organized under the laws of Maine. And so it comes under the oversight powers of the Maine Attorney General. And how much is at stake here? I've heard different figures for what the estate is valued at. Uh, I have as well, and frankly, I don't have much insight into what is the real value of the estate, so I probably can't tell you more than you've read publicly, but I think public estimates are somewhere between 50 and $90 million, and I would say that's, that's very likely correct. Tell us about this settlement. So it's not a settlement per se, and I can get into the, the kind of weird complexity of that if, if you'd be interested, but what it is is an agreement between my clients, the Morgan Art Foundation, uh, and Simon Salamakaro and his family and the Star of Hope Foundation, which is the foundation that was established 
per the terms of Indiana's will, that is the sole beneficiary to all his assets under his will and has a charitable mission going forward to promote his works and legacy. Um, and those parties agreed. So the Star of Hope Foundation is not a party to this litigation, but it is the sole beneficiary of Indiana's estate. Um, and so the Star of Hope agreed directly with my clients outside the confines of the litigation to a productive um, business resolution and relationship going forward. And the agreement governs the party's respective rights and obligations with respect to Indiana's works and legacy, both in resolving past issues and um, to move forward productively in the future. So the litigation is ongoing then? The litigation is ongoing, but what we have done is we, uh, on Monday, as a result of this agreement, which was signed on on. Friday last, we filed a motion in the litigation to dismiss the estate claims against my clients as moot, because what the settlement with the Star of Hope does is conclusively resolve all of the outstanding claims that were at issue between the estate and my clients in the litigation and make them moot. So it is our hope, and we believe um, that what should happen in the best interest of the artist and legally is for those claims to be dismissed and that part of the litigation to come to an end. So in response to this, the estate attorney, James Brannon, said he was preparing to move forward with plans to depose key figures in the case and to take the case to trial. Yes, I did read that statement by him as well. Um, and I can't tell you what his intentions are. Um, I can tell you that his apparent strategy in the litigation has long been at odds with the wishes of the foundation. The foundation has directly instructed him to settle the litigation many times. He has refused to do so. And that's how we ended up where we are now, which is a litigation that is extremely costly and wasteful um, to all parties, uh, yet with both of the parties who are real parties and interests wanting to settle it and wanting to move forward productively, um, and which is how we ended up with an agreement directly with the Star of Hope Foundation. Um, I can tell you, June, that since Mr. Brannon made that statement, we have, in fact, postponed for a small period of time the depositions that were supposed to be uh, taken this week. So those are not actually going forward right now. Also, the Press-Herald reported that the art publisher, Michael McKenzie, denounced the agreement, saying, it smells bad. That's like saying, I just made a deal with the devil. He said, when I go to hell, he's not going to have it that hot. <laughs> yes, I read that also. Um, you know, he... Uh, he has not seen the agreement. Um, he's not a party to the agreement. I can't speculate on the reasons why he may or may not like it, but he has been known to make very inflammatory statements in the past against my clients. They're all completely unfounded. Um, but, you know, that's where we are. You know, it's hard for an outside observer to understand, you know, how this agreement settles things when the defendants in the case say it hasn't. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it is a bit of legal complexity there. So it is um, well-established law, as we set forth in our motion, that, it, again, this is not a settlement of the case, because settlement, as you typically think of it, um, occurs between two parties to the litigation um, in settlement of the litigation claims. And that's not what's happened here. What's happened here is that our client, who is a party to the litigation, and a third party have come to a consensual resolution that essentially renders moot all of the disputes between the estate and my clients in the litigation. Um, and it is well-established law that a number of outside event, events um, can have the effect during the pendency of a litigation of rendering the dispute moot. 
Um, and a court, a federal court, um, like the Southern District of New York, who has the case here, uh, is empowered and has jurisdiction only to hear disputes that present a, quote, live case or controversy, meaning they can only hear issues that are actually live disputes and where the court's judgment will actually have an effect on the parties. And if anything changes during the litigation um, that makes the dispute no longer active and makes it such that the court's judgment will be uh, irrelevant or ineffective, then the court loses jurisdiction over the case and has to dismiss it. And that is essentially what's happened here. Um, for example, you know, this happens in cases where one party sues another over the disclosure of documents and then a third party agency releases the documents during the litigation. And even though the third party agency isn't a party to the lawsuit, that action has rendered the claims moot and then those claims will be dismissed. So, you know, it's not the exact same situation here, but it's the same principle. Is this unique in any way in an art litigation fight? Uh, you know, it is fairly unique. This is the first time uh, that I'm aware um, that a solution like this has been reached. Uh, I think it is a fairly unprecedented result. Um, but it, it came about due to the, the unique situation that we found ourselves in in this litigation, which is that uh, the wishes of the artist and the wishes of the foundation that he left behind were simply not being respected by the executive executor of his estate. And it was the executor who was in charge of the litigation um, and who refused instructions by the foundation to settle the litigation um, and instead spent millions of dollars of estate funds, drained the artist's bank account of literally all of the money he left behind, sold many millions of dollars worth of works of art that had been housed in the artist's private collection, all of which were supposed to go to the foundation to fund uh, and enable its charitable mission. Um, and so you have an executor who was really kind of running rampant in the litigation, spending a ton of the estate's assets on litigation fees against the express wishes of both the artist and the artist's foundation who were the beneficiary of his estate. Um, and it's, I would say, a fairly unusual and, and was an unexpected situation that we found ourselves in, and that's what led to this somewhat unprecedented result. So let me ask you this. You know, there are a lot of legal fights over artists' work, as you know. In this case, it seems like Indiana did have things in place, was thinking forward, but yet it still fell apart. How do you prevent that from happening? You know, I don't know how you prevent that from happening. I would say it really behooves artists, and, and they very rarely do this during their lifetime, which is why you end up with issues like this. Um, but it behooves artists during their lifetime, especially if they've become well-renowned uh, during their lifetime for their art, to really put in place an active foundation that is set up during their lifetime to appoint an executor of their estate who they can trust and they know will fulfill their wishes. You know, it's very hard to control the actions of people after the artist passes away. I don't know what you can do to prevent that. Um, but I do think it is very worthwhile. And again, this, this is something that doesn't necessarily uh, go in tandem with a creative personality and someone that is focused on, on creating art during their life rather than, than leaving the archives and the art and, and the foundation in, in functioning order. But, um, you know, I think the more artists can do to set up the structures that will be necessary to continue their legacy after their death and to do that well in advance during their lifetime, probably the less likelihood of problems like this we will see. 
Thanks, Marin. That's Marin Shaw, a partner at Quinn Emanuel. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.